Well, church, our, our passage this morning comes from 1 Peter. So if you want to open there with me, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13 and go to verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 19. Let me read it for us. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's, let's pray as we, as we begin to look at this text. Lord, I ask as we come this morning um, to examine your word, that you would speak to us, um, that through your word, Father, the Holy Spirit's voice would be loud in our ears. Father, give us soft hearts to apply any correction that you want to bring. Father, give us soft hearts to where if we are looking to ourselves and not the gospel, that we would align ourselves with the truth that has been put out in the word, that we would look to Christ above everything else. Father, we ask for your mercy this morning because on our own, we are weak. We confuse things. We have hard hearts. We don't want to obey. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to open our, open our eyes, to, to allow us to receive the words that you have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, Christmas is almost here. I hope you're ready. Um, if you were with us last week, you know that we are taking a break from Matthew, and we have started a new series focused on Advent. Uh, Dustin Saunders started last week by teaching through a passage in Titus, and we were looking at how the Bible calls us to wait for not only Christmas, but as Dustin was talking about, what we are truly, truly looking forward to. Um, so in our passage this morning, Peter calls us exiles, and that's what we are. If you are a believer this morning, you are an exile. I am an exile. We are just passing through. Earth is not our final home. And so what we look forward to in Advent is both looking forward to Christmas, but ultimately our final home. We long for that. We're more than just tourists because tourists just come to a place and enjoy it and then leave. But we have to settle here. We have to pray for the good of the, our, of the land. And yet we know that this is not our final home. 
We look forward to Jesus' return. And that's what, that's what Advent means. Advent means the coming of a special event or person. So while we wait for Christmas every year and we, we look forward to Christmas because it reminds us of what Christ has done, ultimately as believers we are looking forward to Jesus' return. And waiting is not easy. Waiting is not easy as I think our generation maybe knows better than any other time. Waiting has never been easy, but nowadays, the longest we have to wait is about three to five business days. That's all we have to wait these days, and sometimes even less. And waiting can be hard. Truly waiting, active waiting, looking forward to something is difficult. It's easy to do it poorly. It's easy to wait, maybe like Abraham, who's waiting for his promised child and then looked for a shortcut. Instead of waiting on God, he thought, this is taking too long. I'm going to try to figure out a way to make this easier. And what he did was he wrecked his witness. And that is what we are in danger of as well. As we wait and we look forward to the coming of Christ, we need to look to the Bible to be told how to wait. And that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. The Bible gives us instructions about how, as Christians, we are to wait for the coming of Christ. Peter talks about it this morning in 1 Peter. And as we look through this section, um, we're going to be focused just on this section this morning, so you can keep your Bibles open to it. And what I want to do is I want to break it down into three parts. I want to highlight the three different commands that are given in this section. The first section we will look at is verse 13 and the command to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. That's part one. The second section I want to look at is verses 14 through 16 and the command to be holy. That's section number two. And then finally, we'll look at verses 17 through 19 and the command to conduct ourselves with fear during our time as exiles. So if you're taking notes and you need a structure, that's what it is. Hope, be holy, and have fear. Three sections. Hope, be holy, and have fear. And if you, if you think about those just for a second, they might sound a little weird. Hope, be holy, and have fear. Do those, do those all really go together? Well, I think as we get into it, it will make more sense. I know for me... I've had a really encouraging time wrestling through this passage, looking at this passage and, and studying it, listening to other people teach on this passage. And as I have, I've been really encouraged. And so my prayer today is that you would also see God's truth from this passage. So let's jump in. We're going to first focus on verse 13. This is our hope section. Let me read it again. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So just looking at this, this one verse, what we see is a command to hope. But that command is preceded by two assumptions that, Paul, that Peter is making. And then those two assumptions are pre preceded by a therefore. 
So a command, two assumptions, and a therefore. And what we're going to do is look at each one of these. And we're going to start with the therefore. You always have to start in a passage that starts with therefore, with a therefore. Um, it's important because we don't want to just skip over this. The therefore is, is there for a reason. It's setting a foundation. There is a command that Peter gives in this passage, but the command is not by itself. We, want, we don't want to look over the therefore. Another way of saying it, the therefore, is because of everything I have just said, because of everything I've just told you in the first 12 verses, now do this. So what we need to, under, to do to understand the therefore is we need to kind of pull back. We need to pull back a little bit and understand the first part of the book of Peter. If we don't, um, we will actually just focus on the commands and miss the gospel. And this, this can be bad. This can lead to both bad theology and also legalism. So we want to pull back and see the larger picture. And as we look at the first 12 verses of Peter, First uh, Peter, what we see is that Peter is writing to exiles that are scattered throughout an area that makes up about modern-day Turkey. These believers... Um, as we find out, are experiencing intense persecution. So Peter is writing to believers that are exiles, just, just like we are, and they are in, experiencing intense persecution. And you might think that someone who's writing to people experiencing this persecution, that a letter would be somber and even sad. And while it is serious, this is a very hope-filled letter. Peter encourages them during their time as exiles. And while, while they are experiencing this persecution, Peter give, reminds them of the hope that they have. Peter reminds them that although you are exiles, this is not your final home. We have a final home. As Christians, our hope is in King Jesus. That we don't have to look to the world and the things that are going on in the world because there is another reality that is true about us. Our hope in, is in what Jesus has done for us. That's what we remember during Christmas. And that's what Peter reminds the believers at the very beginning of the letter. He says, this hope is so great that it is kept for us in heaven. And it's un imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept for us. It's something that is sure. He talks about the gospel and reminds us of the hope that we have. And then he says that this hope is so great that even the angels long to look into it. Think about that. That this hope is so incredible that the angels are almost jealous of this. They long to see what this hope that we have as believers is. So it is with that hope that all Christians have that the therefore is connecting this passage with. The therefore is setting up the commands. First, Peter explains and reminds the people of the hope. And then he moves on into the commands. The commands always follow the gospel truth. Another way of saying this is that gospel imperatives always come after gospel indicatives. What that means is that God's commands for his people to live in hope 
be holy, and fear always come after we are reminded what God has done for us. We are reminded of what God has done for us in saving us from our ultimate enemy. He has now adopted us. We have been given new lives, set free from our old sin. Therefore, these are your commands. So the therefore is is important. It connects us to the past and reminds us of the gospel. And this pattern of gospel plus commands is not something just that Peter does. This is actually kind of a pattern we see in the New Testament. Paul also, in a lot of his letters, starts with the gospel. He reminds believers of what the gospel is and then shows them how to live. That's the pattern. Gospel, the law, the commands in the Bible are never alone. We need to see the context. We need to understand where these are commands are coming from. Are these commands just law to beat us down? Are these commands just to, to call us to be perfect so that we can earn our salvation? No. These commands are coming from a loving Father who has done everything for us. He has rescued us. He's given us a new life. Now, walk in that new life. You see how that's so important? It sets up the commands in a different way. So as we come to these commands, instead of already putting up a little barrier in our heart, we can open our heart. What does our loving Father want to tell us about how to live in this new life? So with that context, we are better prepared now to walk into these commands. We have a foundation of the gospel and a reminder of the truth that is what has been done for us. So let's continue to read and let's go into now the two assumptions that Peter makes. We read, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. So these are two assumptions. Peter is saying, These are before the command comes. They are assumptions that Peter is making about his believers. These are not the focus, but they are assumptions, and we can learn something from these assumptions. And so we want to take a second just to look at these before we jump into our first command. Peter is writing to exiles, going through persecution, and he's saying, as you are preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, He's, in a sense, assuming that that's what they're going to be doing. Of course they are. These are believers that are experiencing incredible persecution. These these believers know that Christianity is not a passive thing, but it's an active thing. They are aware that they are engaged in a spiritual battle for their souls. So this, this assumption is that They're going to prepare their minds. They're going to prepare their minds for actions and they're going to be sober-minded. And and while that was true of them, is it true of us? Is Is that something that Peter could say is true of us or he could assume of us that we are also preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded? We're not in that same place as those believers. We aren't in that experiencing persecution And so it's easy for us as Christians to not prepare our minds for action, to not be sober-minded. But this is Peter's call to us today. As Christians, we are engaged in a spiritual war. This is a real reality. 
Just as much as it was a reality back then, although we don't feel it physically. It's easy to slip into thinking that everything is fine. My friends are probably fine. They're probably loving Jesus. They're probably not falling into sin. They're probably not on the edge of destroying and wrecking their face. faith. It's easy to make these assumptions, but the truth is, we are in a war. Peter, later in 1 Peter, describes this describes the enemy as a roaring lion prowling around seeking for someone to destroy. That's the reality that we live in. As Christians, we need to be sober-minded. We need to prepare ourselves for actions, action, knowing that ourselves and our brothers and sisters around us are in a war. To, to not think this way would be naive. To not be serious about the reality that each one of us has temptations and attack all the time. As a church, we need to be looking out for one another, watching each other. The Bible encourages us to encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is tricky, right? It sneaks in there. It it wants you to hold on to it and just hide it away. We need to be watching for one another. Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded. That is our call today. And with that, as we do that, we can now see what this first command is. Our first command is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the command here is to take all of our hope and set it fully on Christ's return and the salvation that we await. Set it fully. You can think about this by taking all of your hope and putting it on that. I think, I think there's times where we are tempted to take our hope and put a little bit on that, but then we also hope for other things. Right? We're hoping for enough things so that if a few of them don't work out, we won't be too discouraged. But what Peter is saying is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that. We hope for that. We long for that day. Our mind is set on that. And just as an aside, if Peter is commanding this, it's because we don't do this naturally. If he's commanding us to do this, it's because we don't do it naturally. Naturally, we hope in other things. As I was reading and studying this week, one of the commentaries said that about this passage that setting our hope fully on the return of Christ is a decision to recognize a new reality that is true of us, but we can't see. It is a decision to recognize a new reality that is true of us, but we can't see. And we don't hope for it because it's, well, it's a 50-50 chance, he is hopefully coming back. Hopefully we will be saved. No, it's, it's a certainty, but we hope for it because it's not here. We look forward to that new reality and we prepare for it. A decision to recognize a reality that's, that's now true about us. And I was, as I was thinking about what does that mean? What does that mean to, to recognize a new reality? A kind of a, a funny analogy popped in my head. Um, it reminded me of my time back in drama class. And uh, before you judge me, I just want to say that drama class was really cool back in the day. 
at least in my school. And uh, the way it worked is every semester we would put on a musical or a play. And so the, the students would audition. They would go out for different roles. And then we would wait to see what happened. Uh, we would wait to see the cast list come out. And one semester, I auditioned for more of a lead role, and I was hoping to get it. I'm not going to tell you the play. Uh, but I went out for this more of a lead role, and then I waited. My audition was done, and I waited. And one Friday afternoon, the cast list was posted on the wall. And we went over, and we saw, and I saw that I, I got the role. And it was going to be a stretch for me. But in one second, as I read that cast list, a new reality or my reality had changed. Something was new about me that had changed in just a second. Now think about that. What, what, what would I do next? Would I just say, oh, that's great. That's true about me. Okay. And then kind of go on and live my life? No, that would be foolish. I would to not recognize this new reality that was now true. What, what it did was it prepared me as I waited. Well, I prepared as I waited. I looked forward to this new role that I was going to play in just a few weeks. And so I prepared. I rehearsed my lines. I rehearsed my song. I went to all of the practices. I was preparing myself because of this new reality that was coming. And while that is a kind of a goofy analogy, I think it's a helpful way to think about it. The cast list has come out. Jesus is king. And we will be with him one day. Not because of our audition was so amazing, but Jesus auditioned in our place. He got us the role and we will be with him. So because of that, it should change the way we live. As we think about moving forward now as Christians, our future reality should change the way that we live now. It's one of the most real things about us. So as we look forward to it, we prepare. So my question this morning, as we think about this for our own life, is what are you hoping in? What am I hoping in? Have we really put our hope all in the return of Jesus, in the salvation that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Or have we slowly allowed ourselves to hope maybe minor things, smaller things. It's so easy to do. And here's a, here's a good way to know if you are hoping in something that's not Jesus. How often are you frustrated? You see, a lot of times when we are frustrated, it's because something we're hoping in is not going the way we wanted it to. It's a quick little diagnostic test of what are we hoping in? What are we getting frustrated about? Because when we hope fully in Jesus Christ and the salvation that will come, there's nothing that can take that away. Our hope is secure. It is a foundation that we can stand on. We can have confidence as we wait for the day to come. So that is our first command from Peter. To hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. So now as we go back to our passage... Let's continue down. This, this is going to be our next section now. Um, and if you're taking notes, you can label this section holy. So let me read it again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, with the second section, before Peter gives us the command to be holy, he first tells us what not to do. Did you catch that? There's, there's almost like two parts to this, to this next section. Peter tells us, be holy, but he also tells us what not to do. In the first part, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then in the second section, he says, be holy in all your conduct. Notice how Peter doesn't just say, don't do this. It's easy as Christians to think sometimes that Christianity is about, don't do that, don't do that. But that's because you didn't finish the verse. You need to read the whole verse. A lot of Christianity is about taking off the old and putting on the new. This is the way Paul describes it. We put off the old self in order that we can put on the new. They're connected. They're linked together. Unless we take off the old, we can't put on the new. Depending on what sort of situation it is. So as we, as we jump into this, we want to see what are we first called to take off. And here it says, do not, here's the negative, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That is what we're told not to do. We are told not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But what does that mean? Think for a second. What does it mean to, be, to not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance? Well, if you know Romans 12, you might be thinking, this sounds a lot like what Paul talks about in Romans 12, where he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. But Peter here is saying, do not be conformed to the pattern or to the, do not be conformed to your former ignorance. And while they're really similar, I like the way that Peter says this. There's a helpful word here that I want to point out in the way that that Peter describes this. He says, ignorance. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And I think that word ignorance is a a helpful way to think about it. And I I hadn't really thought about it before this passage, um, but it's, it's clarifying You see, before Christ, we had passions. We had another word, another way of thinking about passions is desires. We had passions and desires that were not for Christ. But now that Christ has come, now that we've had our eyes opened, we can see that those passions and those desires to live an unholy life, they were ignorant. Now that something so much better has come, To go back to those things would be a mistake. It would be silly because the only reason we had those passions and desires is because we hadn't had our eyes open to something that is so much greater. Something to desire that is is so much bigger and better than these passions that we had before. So Peter is saying, don't go back to your passions that you had before you knew Christ. Those were ignorant passions. Isn't that interesting to think about? That the passions before Christ were uninformed. They were ignorant passions because 
what makes sense is to value Christ. Christ is greater than anything that the world can provide. So to desire him is what actually makes sense. A helpful story that really gives a good example is the people of Israel. As they often do, they provide good examples of what not to do. And if you read in the Old Testament, after they are brought out from slavery in Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai where God reveals his holiness and gives them the law. He has just rescued them from their enemies. He has set them free, destroying their enemies. He has revealed his saving power, and then he calls them to worship him. And so quickly, the Israelites go back to worshiping an idol. They go back to worshiping an idol made of gold that can't speak or move and looks like a cow. They go back to to worshiping something that was man-made rather than worshiping the one true God. This is a perfect example of what it means to go back. Their eyes had been opened. They had seen the one true God. They shouldn't go back to their former ignorance, their former passions, and yet they do. And we might have We might have grace on them if they were on a desert island. They had never seen the one true God. They had never heard the gospel. Okay, maybe we have some understanding for them to make an idol. But they've seen God. They've seen his saving power. And then after Moses is gone for a little while, they're thinking, you know what? You know what was really good before this God? Worshiping a thing that doesn't move. Let's go back to that. And it just seems so ignorant. And really, it is. But sadly, aren't we just the same? And that's why Peter commands us not to do this. We have heard the gospel. We have seen God's power. Hopefully in your own life, maybe in a friend's life, you've seen God's power to transform lives. If you've read the word, you've seen that God is holy and perfect and worthy of our praise, and yet we can go back to our former passions. We can go back to desiring things that really it's foolish to desire. It's foolish not to desire worshiping and serving the one true God. Peter is saying, don't go back to your former former passions. That was ignorant. So the second part of this command is now the the part where we put on. First is the negative, and the second half is the positive, what we put off in order to put on. And we read in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We take off the old. We aren't conformed to our former passions. And we put on the new. We put on holiness. And here, Peter is quoting a verse from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Peter is showing that just like the Israelites in the past who are called to be holy, we as New Testament believers are called to live holy lives. And the reason is because we worship the same God. 
Just like they were called to be holy, we are called to be holy, a holy people because we worship a holy God. Holiness, actually, is the only thing that describes God, describes God three times. Think about that. All of the other things that are used to describe God, He is just. He is love. All of those things are said once, but in Isaiah, we see that God is described as holy, holy, holy. It is used three times to emphasize the greatest possible degree. Holy, holy, holy. If we are to know anything about God, we are to know that He is holy. That means He is totally whole. He is perfect and righteous in all that He does. There is no flaw in Him. He is totally different and set apart from us. He is perfect in all of His ways and worthy of our worship. We worship a holy God and we are commanded now to be a holy people. But as you hear that, be holy. That can sound intimidating. You know, just love God with all your mind, heart, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. That can sound intimidating. And yet, because we worship a holy God, that is what we are called to. But it doesn't have to be an intimidating command when you remember the gospel. You see, for those who have put their hope in Jesus, this command is life-giving because Jesus has already fulfilled this command for us. You see, what Jesus accomplished on the cross in our place was to remove our sin and to make us holy. We have now been adopted by God through Christ's work. As children of a holy God, we also need to be holy in order to be in his family. Christ has accomplished that work. Christ has declared us holy. So unlike the Israelites who needed to make sure they were ritually clean in order to have God's presence, Jesus' work on our behalf has cleansed us from the inside out. We have been given new hearts. We have been declared holy. Now we need to walk in that holiness. We need to walk in that holiness that has already been declared true of us. We're not earning our holiness, but we're walking out of something that has been declared of us. Paul also writes about this in 2 Corinthians 7.1. We read that Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see that? We are bringing holiness to completion. Another translation says we perfect holiness or we complete holiness. We have already been declared to be holy and now we are to live it out. If we were a part of a sports team, we would have holy on the back of our jersey. That's the team we are, played, are playing for and we are representing holiness. Now play in a holy way. We are representing a holy God and we live out holiness not to earn it, but because it's been made true of us. But what does this look like? How do we obey this command? 
How do we as believers who are declared to be holy live out hoping in the gospel? Well, I think a big part of this looks like not bringing shame on the one that has made us holy. You can think of a son who's been adopted into a family. He's been ransomed from his old life and brought into a new family, given a new last name. That son wants to to honor his father in all that he does. But now, think about how we've been ransomed. Think about how we have been brought into this new family. At the end of our passage in the, for today, we see that God has adopted us. He's ransomed, ransomed us, but he hasn't paid with perishable things like gold or silver. I love how he says that. Like he makes gold and silver seem so worthless. For us, gold and silver are kind of everything. That's our, our currency. And he says he hasn't used perishable things like gold and silver. Because they are such a small thing when you look at what God, how God paid for our salvation. He used the blood of Jesus. We were adopted, we were ransomed, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. How precious, how valuable does that mean that we are to God? He has freed us. So a question that we should ask ourselves is, am I doing anything in such a way as to bring shame on the God who is ransoming me? Really ask this question. Am I living in a way that honors God? Or am I living in a way that if I really knew that God saw me at all times, I would be ashamed? Maybe even not God, but another believer. Is there something in my life some sin that I'm hiding, that if it were to be brought out, I would be ashamed to call myself a Christian. This is what it means to live a holy life, that we represent our God. And again, this is not in a way to earn our our righteousness. We are adopted. But it's in a way to walk out the holiness that He's been given us. Sin, like we said before, wants to hold on. It wants to sneak into our lives. Sin is deceptive. It sneaks in. And if we are not careful, it will hang around. It will ruin our witness. God has given us the Holy Spirit to fight it. The Bible says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That is the the power that we've been given to fight sin. We don't have... To live in fear of our sin, we can confess it. As, a, as believers, that's what we do. We confess our sins one to another and pray for one another. So if, if there is something in your life that, that you know would bring shame on the, name, on the name Christian, I encourage you, get it out. Cut it off. Walk away from it. Walk in holiness. Live an open, honest life before God. It's not worth it. We need to constantly be looking out for one another and ourselves, asking, is this, is this true of my own life? Has something creeped in? So that is, that's how we apply and walk out the second command, holiness. And finally, we're going to move on to our last section, command number three. And you can label this section 
Live in fear. So far we have seen that God commands us to set our hope fully on Him, to be holy, and now we see we are to conduct ourselves in fear. The passage says, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself, cons- yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So our third command is to fear. And like I said earlier, this might sound a little odd. This might sound a little weird, and I, as I was wrestling through this text this week, this was the one I had to wrestle through the most. What, what does it mean to fear? We've been reminded of the gospel. So, so why do we need to fear? But I think it's an important thing to talk about because especially as American believers, we don't talk about fear as much as we should. We know that God is our comforter. He's our provider. He's our father. And he's love. And all these things are true But if we miss the part where the the New Testament calls us to fear God, then we don't have an accurate picture of how the Bible describes Him. You see, God has purchased our salvation. We belong to Him. He has ransomed us, but not just to live our own life. We now belong to Him. Our new life is in Him and Every believer knows that we will stand before him one day and give an account of how we lived. We are not fearing judgment, but we have a healthy fear of the judge of the world. We are constantly asking ourselves, is there a sin in my life that I'm hiding? The New Testament talks a lot about fear, actually. And it describes it as a good thing. It describes it as something that leads to life. One of my favorite passages that highlights fear is Acts 9.31. So this is where, uh, in the story of Acts, Paul has just been transformed from being a persecutor of the church to now preaching the gospel. And this is the last few words in a section. Read this with me. It says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see what it said? The church both had the fear of the Lord, as well as the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So it multiplied. The early church understood God's power, and they feared Him in a way that I think we have lost. We want to have this holy fear Not a fear of judgment, but a rightful fear of who God is. A fear that causes us to live holy lives. To be in awe of God. Not just to bring God down to our own level and say, no, I don't fear Him. He's he's just my friend. We need to remember who God is and have a healthy fear. As a church walks in fear and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, God will build it. God will multiply it. 
Another verse that talks about this is 2 Corinthians 1.7. The verse that we just looked at before. Let me read it again. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. We just studied that. In the fear of God. It's cool how these, these two verses, or this, this verse and the, the section that we are studying today, are actually really closely linked. They both start by referencing the gospel as the foundation. And then they talk about being holy. But after talking about being holy, they reference the fear of the Lord. Be holy and live in fear. Those two things are connected in both of these passages. And remember, this is not fear of judgment. This is not fear of earning our salvation. That has been done for us. But this is a healthy fear of God. Actually, to live without fear would be ignorant. To worship the one true God who is creator of everything that holds our life in his hand, to not have a healthy fear of him would be naive. Thankfully, for those who are in Christ, all of God's power, all of God's goodness, strength is working for believers. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear judgment, but we can stand in a holy fear of who he is. And this leads naturally into what does that look like in our lives? What does it look like to have a holy fear? Well, I think having a holy fear would look like a hatred for sin. And this, and this makes sense uh, with all the other applications that we've already looked at today because they're so closely linked. But if we truly know that God has ransomed us from a life of sin, that God hates sin, to fear Him would mean to hate sin as well. It would be like a child that has been adopted from a war-torn country and then brings landmines into their backyard to play with them. Can you imagine that? The very thing that they are rescued from to bring them now into your home just, just to play with. It's idiotic. And yet, that's how we can treat sin. We don't have a healthy reverence for God's hatred for sin. And so we are careless. We don't take it seriously. But a healthy fear of God leads us to run from sin and to pursue holiness. Another application of this is a healthy fear would produce a love for God's commands. You know, there are, there are those who think about God's commands and, well, those are a nice suggestion. And maybe those commands are just for the overachievers. Well, I don't really know the commands of God, so I'm not really going to work on obeying them. That shows a lack of fear. If we had this healthy fear of God, we would desire to know what He calls us, how He calls us to live. We would learn the Word. We would see where He's calling us to go. We would understand His commands and we would obey them joyfully. I think this would look like following His command to go to all nations, to being a part of the Great Commission. This is something that is on God's heart like we've looked at. And yet, it's so easy to say, that's for other Christians. I, I know that God commanded the Great Commission, but that's not for me. 
a healthy fear would say, if that's on God's heart, I want that to be on my heart. I want to take God's command seriously. I want to hate sin, and I want to love God's law. So truly living in fear would look like that. So, as we finish up today, my prayer is that our church would have both of those things. That our church would have a healthy fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That we would not forget the gospel and look to God's commands just out of legalism, but out of an overflow of what God has done for us, we would love God's commands. I pray that as we live that way, just like the book of Acts says that God would build His church, that our numbers would be multiplied, not because of some strategy that we have in order to bring a bunch of people in, some man-made strategy to attract people, but a fear of the Lord where God multiplies our number. A healthy balance of understanding the gospel and truly living it out. So as we close today, that's our reminder to set our hope fully in Christ, to live holy lives, and to fear God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and for your good commands. We thank you for what you have done for us, for declaring us to be holy so that we can walk holy lives, Lord. Build up your church, Lord. Cause us to love you accurately. To not be conformed to the passions that we once had, but to to live for you, God. We ask that this, this group of people would be built up in you to be a light to our neighborhood, Father. And if there's anyone that is that doesn't know you, that these things are not true of them because they have not been declared holy, Lord. I pray that they would see how good you are. They would see the goodness of the gospel. And they would believe in you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.